You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 7th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, we'll examine the rise of Islamic extremism in the Sahel region of Africa. Then we'll speak to Christina Lam, the journalist who's recorded the shocking sexual violence perpetrated by Hamas on Israeli civilian women on October the 7th. Paul Rhodes is here to go through the papers. Good morning. I'll be discussing how the US has charged Russian soldiers with war crimes in Ukraine and the UK government's latest immigration debacle. We'll have a check-in from COP28, a roundup of business news and... People want to travel more than ever. The development in luxury travel is phenomenal. It's going from strength to strength. We'll have a report on high-end holidays before hearing all about the plans for Lisbon's new airport. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. An emergency spending bill to provide billions of dollars in new security assistance for Ukraine and Israel was blocked in the US Senate on Wednesday. The US military says it's grounding its fleet of V-22 Osprey aircraft after a crash last week off the coast of Japan that killed eight people on board. And after launching a record-shattering global tour and becoming the world's most streamed musical artist in 2023, Taylor Swift has been named as Time magazine's Person of the Year. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. We begin the programme in the increasingly unstable Sahel region of Africa, where Islamist extremism appears to be on the rise as Western forces move out, leaving a security vacuum. I'm joined now by Rebecca Tinsley, a journalist and a human rights campaigner and founder of Network for Africa. Rebecca, many thanks for, for speaking to us. Although the entire region is beset with security difficulties. I'd, I'd like to focus on Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso in particular. And I wondered if you might start by giving us an overview of those countries' recent political history. They've all undergone a forced change in leadership. I think you have to start by looking at the moment when they became independent from France uh, 60 years ago. Um, and the thing really is France never left. France, whereas the British... Um, departed its um, uh, former colonies with its tail between its legs. France maintained military, economic, political, and financial interests in these countries, and not always in a good way. In fact, they alienated rather a lot of people. So, I mean, just just recently, uh, in 2021, when uh, the president of Chad, Idris Deby, was killed, uh, instead of saying, you know, this is an opportunity when we might think about uh, encouraging democracy and lack of corruption, transparency, instead of that, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, rocked up in N'Djamena, in Chad, and anointed uh, Idris Deby's son. And this caused a really bad feeling across the 
former colonies because anyone who'd been hoping for a new dawn uh, realized they weren't going to get it. And incidentally, he did the same thing recently in Cameroon. Uh, and this really has, you know, this causes waves across the area, the, the region. Um, another thing that really left a bad taste in the mouth was it is well known in Niger, for instance, where there were French troops, that the French were putting local troops in the front line to be mowed down. And whether or not that's true, what matters is that local people believed that was happening. And it was part of the sort of high-handedness of, of the French. And then finally, um, the European Union and France were the architects of a deal um, that was sort of aimed at curbing migration from these areas. And what they didn't quite realize is that these countries make a lot of money from migration um, by, you know, literally selling cups of tea to all the people who go on a vast caravan across the Sahel and the Sahara to reach the Mediterranean. So these were these were three factors recently that caused a lot of annoyance. And the Russians and the Chinese are not stupid, and they have calibrated, first of all, this, this sort of um, alienation from France. They've calibrated exactly what corrupt African leaders want which is a percentage of any any resources that they can rip off from the country in question. And the Russians and the Chinese have uh, ponied up that money and come in and said, well, we can give you some security to keep you in power. And given that most of these countries, they only really control to the suburbs of their capital city, uh, the Russian mercenaries are giving these guys exactly what they want, which is to prop them up and keep them in power. So been a, there's been a Western military presence, I mean, French or German or UN troops in all of these countries, but they've either left or they're in the process of leaving now. Why is that? They've been, they've been pushed out, um, really, by, you know, popular annoyance. As I say, they, you know, they, the, there is a huge anti-French feeling which has been um, sort of weaponized by the Russians uh, who've realized that people are fed up with the French for the reasons I've, I've said, high-handedness. And they've managed to sort of twist it to be anti-Western because they've come out with a lot of propaganda about, you know, neo-colonialism, which is ironic because both the Russians and the Chinese are pretty neo-colonialist in the way that they're they're just emptying these countries of their natural resources. You know, for instance, at the moment um, in the Central African Republic, where the the Russians have a real lock, um, there are just convoys of of trucks loaded with wood, uh, timber, and minerals going through Cameroon to um, Douala port and to elsewhere. You know, they are emptying the place. Yeah. But the leaders of these countries don't care because they're getting a percentage and they're being protected. So when we talk about the rise of uh, Islamic State in these in these places, I mean, the Islamic State has many branches. What particular, which, which particular offshoot are we speaking about? We're talking about um, Islamic State itself, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, all of which, incidentally, are being supported monetarily by outside interests like people in the Gulf who want to encourage Islamism. But basically, there is a huge, there is just this wide corridor 
from the Atlantic uh, to the Red Sea of um, really growing Islamist feeling. But again, this is not because suddenly Africans have decided to become jihadists. It's because these guys offer, um, particularly uh, young men, unemployed young men, a much more interesting life. Would you prefer to be standing in a field, um, you know, that is bone dry in the heat, trying to um, get crops out of a field or take care of some goats? Or would you prefer to be riding around on a motorbike wearing dark glasses and with a gun and able to rape any girls you, you desire and rip off people? You know, it's, it's pretty obvious. And with the help of the madrasas uh, that are, again, well-funded by people in the Gulf, they have managed um, to weaponize unemployment and the, you know, the, the fact is these places have lousy education because the African leaders haven't cared about prioritizing that, nor are they addressing climate change. So the Islamists are, are just cashing in on that. Is Russia's Wagner Group involved in terms of, of, of the violence of security and, and, and so on? Well, here's one of the, the interesting things is that since the UN and the French and the Germans have withdrawn or are in the process of withdrawing, actually, violence is increasing in these places. So, in other words, the Russian mercenaries are not defeating the Islamist militias and the extremists and the jihadists. If anything, you know, they are just propping up the leaders who are in power in, uh, or, and protecting uh, mines. Um, if you look at the number of terrorist deaths, Burkina Faso is second in the world after Afghanistan for terrorist deaths. You know, this, in places like Ghana, Togo, Benin, Cameroon, uh, Islamist violence is actually surging. And, you know, the Mali army recently was boasting how they had repelled four attacks. But this is, this is nonsense. Unfortunately, violence is surging. Uh, and finally, how much of a threat does this pose to the West? And does the West have any plans to counter the, the rise in Islamic extremism in that area of the world? I think it's a real threat, actually, um, not least because we're going to lose control of really essential uh, minerals, um, you know, like rare earths that are important if we are going to do a transition to a green economy. Um, but also the Russians are setting up military bases all along that corridor I talked about from the Atlantic uh, in Cameroon um, to the Red Sea in Sudan. And incidentally, Sudan, we haven't mentioned so far, that is where more casualties are happening because of Islamism than you're finding in Gaza at the moment. Uh, nobody talks about it, but this is a this is a country in the middle of a horrible civil conflict in which the Islamists are, are getting a foothold and, and will probably win. Um, this, this is an event. If we care about um, our own security and our ability to access essential minerals, we should be focusing a lot more. But of course, we're not. We're not engaged because we've kind of given up and pulled out and allowed the Russians and the Chinese to get a foothold. Rebecca, thank you. That's Rebecca Tinsley there. And this is The Globalist.
It's 12 minutes past nine in Tel Aviv. That's 7.12 here in London. Now, there are widespread reports and mounting evidence that rape was used as a tool of terror in the Hamas attacks on Israel on October the 7th. Sunday Times chief foreign correspondent Christina Lamb has been to Israel to find out more and what she discovered is shocking. Listeners may wish to prepare themselves. Christina, many thanks for agreeing to speak to us. The the first indication of rape came from live stream footage from Hamas itself. What did that show? Yeah, thanks, Georgina. Um, That basically showed things like uh, there was one particular video which showed a young woman being dragged by her hair into the back of a truck and you could see uh, that all the area around her knickers uh, were was very bloodied. Um, so that led people to sort of wonder if something else was going on. There were other, other videos that, that showed similar kinds of things. Uh, and of course, there were eyewitness reports too. Uh, people have now been speaking out about what they saw, particularly at that music festival. Yes, so that particular video was at the Supernova Music Festival where lots of young people were. And so I went to Israel and talked to various people. Um, It has to be said that women's groups, they're very angry that they feel people haven't been taking this seriously. Uh, But I, you know, I didn't know, was there evidence, was there not? Um, So I I spoke to various people. There is a huge, uh, biggest ever police investigation going on in Israel into sexual violence on October the 7th. But I uh, went to uh, a safe space that one community has created for survivors of the music festival and talked to uh, people there. There were about 80 people gathered, some of them, most of them were young people who'd been at the festival, some of them were also parents of people that were killed at the festival, and um, talked to people and therapists that are working there too. And in particular, I talked to uh, a man who told me absolutely horrific story of how when Hamas attacked and he was running for his life and hid under the stage and then he came out after a while and saw that uh, a a young woman who was being raped by eight to ten Hamas fighters and she was screaming at them just to kill her Um, and eventually they shot her in the head and um, he then ran for hours and eventually was in another place hiding and saw another young woman uh, who they were attempting to rape. And he was very traumatised by what he'd seen. You met with members of a, a voluntary religious organisation that collects the remains of the dead, including their blood, so they can be buried in accordance with, with Jewish tradition. They told you about some of the awful things that they had observed That's right. I spoke to the team leader of uh, one of these groups and they went and collected around a thousand bodies and and he talked about finding young women, not just at the festival, but in some of the kibbutzim um, in unnatural positions, their legs of akimbo, they had been shot in the head, but their jeans were pulled down or their underwear was ripped and as he said I mean if you're shot in the head your your jeans don't fall down 
Um, and so he and his colleagues, uh, you know, had little doubt what they were seeing. I also spoke to people working in the morgue at the military base where most of the bodies were brought. And there was a female team that was really they had the gruesome task of opening the body bags and uh, for the bodies to be identified and then prepared for burial. And, and they said that many of the female bodies were very bruised in the legs, that some of them, even the pelvis was broken and were very bloodied again around the um, vagina in that area. So they started to think that what is this that we're seeing here? Uh, Israeli defence forces have interrogated members of Hamas who were captured on that day. What did they find out about their instructions when it came to the treatment of women? Was this a deliberate ploy? Well, they believe so. They say that the people that they've interrogated say that they had instructions to, they use the expression to dirty the women or or, um, whore the women. And so... Uh, but obviously, you know, they, we have to, I wouldn't just rely on IDF testimony, but it's, I think, most important thing is is talking to the people that actually were there. Uh, the, the lack of international response has been extremely puzzling. The, the United Nations, particularly UN women, the, the campaigners for the hashtag MeToo movement, why do you think this is? So Israeli feminist groups are furious about this. Uh, I think part of it is the, I mean, first of all, we should say in any conflict, you know, it takes time for women to come forward. This is a very difficult thing to talk about. I'm, in the work for my book, Our Bodies, Their Battlefields on War Rape, I, I talked to women who'd kept silent for 50 years. So, you know, this is really hard um, because it is the one crime where um, the victim is often made to feel that they've done something wrong. So there was a question with what happened in Israel, why there are no actual survivors, victims coming forward. There are survivors of the festival who say they witnessed rape. Uh, now, this may be because um, at, when this actually happened, the authorities were so sort of overwhelmed the hospitals told me they never asked people coming in about whether they'd been raped or gave rape kits because they didn't even think about it. Um, so it's possible that you know forensic evidence was lost. It's also sadly possible that most of the women that it's happened to were killed or taken hostage. And it's noticeable that of the women and girls that were released in that week-long pause in the fighting, there's 20 women and girls still in Gaza that weren't released, and they are the ones that were at the festival, the young women in their 20s. So people are wondering, why is it that they were not um, brought back? There was just a couple of that age that were brought back right at the end. So it's the question is, you know, um, was there a sort of, deliberate not believing what happened um, in Israel. I think partly this is a war with lots of propaganda. Uh, I think the attention moved very quickly onto the really horrific uh, um, events in Gaza. And so people were, you know, so horrified at uh, uh, the civilian casualties, the women and children being killed in Gaza, uh, which is horrific. But it doesn't mean that we can't also be 
outraged and horrified at what happened to Israeli women on the 7th of October. So I think it, it did get a bit all caught up in the, in the sort of propaganda war. I mean, you've worked in war and combat zones for over three decades. We've known each other for, for, for much of that. I've always read your work, including the book you mentioned, Our Bodies, Their Battlefield, and you give voice to the women in conflicts who expose how in warfare today rape is used by armies and uh, as uh, and terrorist militias as a weapon to, to humiliate and uh, oppress people. But this piece in which you wrote about these rapes in the Sunday Times this week is probably the most disturbing piece of yours I've ever read, and it haunts me. How has it affected you? Yeah, I mean, listening to these stories, um, obviously the people I spoke to were very deeply traumatised. Um, and uh, and writing the stories also, yeah, it's very traumatic but I think it's very important that people know what's happening and you know um, that far too long there's been silence about what happens to women in war so if I can help shine a light on that a bit then that is you know um, hopefully useful but we also need to go to the next step which is actually to do something about it not to just be shocked about it and express outrage and you know we're very far from that anywhere there is in the last 20 or so years that the international criminal court has existed only two people have been convicted for this and even conflicts where there was a lot of discussion about the rape and international tribunals were set up, such as Rwanda and Bosnia. Actually, very few people were brought to justice. If you look at the Yazidis who were taken as sex slaves by Islamic State almost 10 years ago, most of them are still can't go home, they're still in camp. Some of them are still being held. And only one person has actually been prosecuted for that, and that was recently in Germany. So we are so far from actually doing anything about this anywhere. And Israeli women feel angry that they weren't listened to. But, you know, look at what's happening in Darfur and Sudan. Lots of women are being raped there. Nobody's talking about that. I believe the figures in Eastern Congo this year for the number of women and girls raped is about 10,000. And, you know, I challenge you to find a sentence written about that in any media. So there is a problem generally. Christina, thank you very much indeed. That's Christina Lamb there. And I would urge you to look at the piece she wrote in last week's Sunday Times. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world.
You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio with me, Georgina Godwin. The time now, 7.23.24 now in London. And we'll continue with today's newspapers. And joining me in the studio is Paul Rhodes, who's Deputy Publishing Editor of Newsweek. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning. Uh, we are looking first at The Washington Post and the fact that the US has filed its first war crimes charge related to the Russia-Ukraine war. Tell us more. Yes, um, the US has charged four Russian soldiers with uh, war crimes after they allegedly abducted and tortured an American citizen who was living in southern Ukraine. Um, this gentleman was living with his wife in uh, the town of Mylov in the province of Kherson, where there has been a lot of, of fighting. And he was um, taken from his home and, and, and taken to a military compound for 10 days where he was beaten, threatened, and subjected to a mock execution according to court documents that were unsealed yesterday in Washington. Um, yeah, the U.S. Uh, Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland said that the rule of law is how we protect people and our shared humanity, and that's why they were pursuing these charges after an investigation by the um, home, Homeland Security and the FBI. Uh, and there's also charges now, uh, people are talking about uh, Hamas. This is Garland talking, and, and he, he, was, uh, he was asked if the Justice Department plans to seek charges against members of Hamas who killed U.S. citizens in, in Israel on October the 7th. Uh, and he said that, that, that indeed Hamas had murdered more than 30 Americans uh, and that they are investigating those crimes and will hold those people accountable. Yes, it, it, um, it, it certainly seems that America is doing this and, and, and what they want to do. And in the Russian case here, it seems to be... It, would, it will be more of a symbolic um, case and, and certainly justice for the alleged victim in the circumstances as um, Russia and the U.S. Does not have, do not have an extradition of treaty. And, of course, it will be very unlikely that someone <laughs> will stand trial for this. But um, America has uh, arrested people before if they, after they've tried to leave Russia for this. And um, there's been no response from Russia to these allegations as yeah. yet. Uh, let's go now to the FT, although indeed take your pick of any UK paper because this is uh, headlines everywhere. And this is the uh, resignation of the immigration minister, uh, Robert Jenrick. Yes, this was on the front page of pretty much every um, newspaper in Britain this morning. And um, yeah, as asylum um, and, and immigration is a hot button um, topic in the United Kingdom. And Robert Jenrick, who is the UK's immigration minister, quit yesterday. Um, over the plans to um, the, revive the uh, Rwanda asylum bill. Um, he says uh, that uh, this would be a, a triumph over, of hope over experience and that the bill will probably end up getting shot down in court like the last one was um, over its um, um, breaches to the human rights laws. So what he wants, though, I mean, at, at first glance, you could look at the story and go, oh, look, he's, he's resigned because he thinks that this is Rwanda's a really bad idea. No, it's the other way. He wants tougher measures. Uh, and in fact, it, what it appear, would appear to be is that he may be positioning himself uh, as, as a, a, perhaps a, a leadership rival to Suella Braverman. Um, that, that there is a high potentiality for that. Um, um, Rishi Sunak is under immense um, pressure here, and he's called on the Tories to unite or die. Um, over this issue and others, but whether he will um, be around, there are, there is discussions that there could be a vote of no confidence against him, and then it will be another bun fight for, um, and certainly more of a more right-leaning uh, politician to take charge of the Tory party. 
I mean, how many prime ministers will that be? I'm, I'm, I'm running out of fingers and toes trying to count. Uh, now, here's a story that's been in the in the works for a long time. We kind of knew this was coming. Italy's been hinting at this heavily, but they have finally told China that they are leaving the Belt and Road Initiative. They haven't. They have indeed. Um, they. Courier at De La Serra uh, broke the story yesterday. And uh, yes, uh, Georgia Maloney, um, who did uh, mention when she campaigned um, um, to be prime minister that, that the deal had brought um, very little um, economic benefit to Italians. So she told um, uh, the Chinese counterparts that they are uh, will be leaving the deal when it, it, there was a natural break uh, in March 2024. And it would have continued for another five years if they had kept in. But they've told them you know, uh, sorry, you know, this isn't working, but we still want to be friends, which you always tell someone when you break up, I guess. <laughs> um, but in terms of, of, of their, their sort of main partners, I mean, France and Germany, I suppose, are, are Italy's main partners. They, interestingly, exported significantly more to China than Italy did. Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of funny how these things kind of worked out. I think there was maybe, uh, there was hope at the time um, that this would be a, a trade bonanza for the Italians, but it never really panned out. And also now there were grave, you know, security concerns in the West of that, you know, that it, China could have access to sensitive technologies and key infrastructure projects. And with um, Italy um, assuming the presidency of the G7 um, next year, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably a better look for them to say, hey, we're on the sides of with the U.S. and the other G7 nations, none of which had, had joined the Belt and Road Initiative and, and play it safer that way. It's yeah. Also, yeah. Uh, finally, let's go to your own publication. Uh, and this is a story about bears. Yes, um, it's a story about bears and, and sadly how they're being affected by global warming in in Siberia. And uh, my uh, colleague Anna Skinner reports that um, some of the animals um, in the Amur region um, near the northern Chinese border have been wandering around in a, in a stupor and kind of a and half asleep because they're all ready to hibernate, but because the temperatures have been abnormally warm in October and November. Um, it's, it's not cold enough for them to go to bed yet. And also that some of the dens are a bit damp, and, and male bears especially do not like a damp den. So they, their bears' metabolisms naturally um, slow down at this time of year, so like, like many of us. <laughs> and we just want to eat a bunch of carbs and go to sleep, but apparently it's not the right conditions for bears right now so if you're out in Siberia please be, mind yourself watching out for half half asleep bears kind of like after they had a turkey dinner or something <laughs> Paul Rhodes thank you very much indeed now here's what else we're keeping an eye on today an emergency spending bill to provide billions of dollars in new security assistance for Ukraine and Israel was blocked in the U.S. Senate on Wednesday as Republicans pressed their demands for tougher measures to control immigration at the U.S. border with Mexico. The vote was 49 in favour to 51 against, leaving the measure short of the 60 votes needed to pave the way to start debate. The U.S. military says it's grounding its fleet of V-22 Osprey aircraft after a crash last week off the coast of Japan that killed eight people on board. Tokyo grounded its small fleet of the tilt-rotor aircraft the day after the fatal incident. Critics in Japan have said the Boeing and Bell helicopter-developed Osprey is prone to accidents, although the U.S. and Japanese governments reject that claim. 
And after launching a record-shattering global tour and becoming the world's most streamed musical artist in 2023, Taylor Swift has been named as Time magazine's Person of the Year. She's the first person from the arts to be honoured by the magazine for her success as an entertainer. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Well, let's check in now with the Global Climate Conference. That's COP28 in the UAE. I'm joined now from Dubai by Suzanne Lynch, who's Global Playbook author and associate editor at Politico. Uh, Suzanne, could we start with the highlights from yesterday at COP, please? Yes, yeah. Um, um, it's the. I think the biggest takeaway were was comments by John Kerry, that's President Biden's special envoy for climate change, who's been a very visible presence here in COP. And he had a press conference yesterday um, where he made really the most clearest statement yet on America's position on the issue of fossil fuels, saying that the United States supported a fade out of fossil fuels uh, ultimately and said that largely the ending of, of coal and gas and oil burning was required uh, to keep these uh, levels, these targets on track. So um, that's been quite a, a strong statement by uh, John Kerry. Um, and then we also saw uh, a number of you know, smaller announcements, meetings going on, but mostly behind the scenes as negotiators try to uh, make progress on uh, the text they've been working on uh, behind the scenes. Uh, we're hearing about uh, the building's breakthrough, about uh, a partnership aiming to make near zero uh, resilient buildings. Yeah, that's been one of the um, the kind of themes here. We've I was at a session myself about, for example, uh, the the need to retrofit, uh, particularly in places like the UK, and how there's demand there by consumers, but that there are not enough people feel that they don't have enough resources to do that or don't have enough uh, money to do that. Then you've got the whole issue of uh, on a more serious level, if you like, the effect of climate change on buildings. We've seen collapses uh, in in buildings and destructions everywhere from Bangladesh to Hawaii, etc. So there's been um, a very important uh, emphasis on trying uh, to transform that sector. Um, so that's kind of one of the themes that it captures the kind of different aspects to the climate challenge uh, that different groups and different alliances are trying to work through here at COP. Yeah. Uh, I was very interested to read about the Waste Map, this global platform to use satellite monitoring to track uh, and measure methane emissions from waste. Yeah, I mean, methane has been a big theme here. Um, methane is a huge emitter and uh, it, it's a quite controversial issue. It, it affects farming, affects other in- industries. So it's, it's the kind of thing that people, that not everybody is going to agree on. So it's a good example of one of the aspects here that will only be agreed to on a voluntary basis. So some people say that, you know, it's a good thing that people who want to make changes can do this on methane. But then there is a problem that those who don't want to don't have to. Um, but there has been some progress on that. We've had some dairy companies, for example, have joined an alliance to cut methane and said they're going to try and monitor their methane emissions, etc. And this idea of using technology, as you mentioned there, to try and map that more specifically. Yeah. Uh, also, the 15-minute city idea has been getting a lot of attention. Yeah, in one sense, um, the where the COP event is on is actually a bit of a 15-minute city. It's kind of the idea... Um, that this whole planning concept uh, that you should be 15 minute near walk a bike ride away from 
necessities and services like education, healthcare uh, and leisure. Now, I mean, there is an irony that Dubai is this sprawling city itself. It does have a good metro system, um, but a very, very choked, very, very choked with traffic itself. Uh, but yeah, that kind of uh, urban side of things is a very strong team here. And we've also had a big representation from mayors, the group called C40, for example, that brings mayors from across the world together in that they have in a lot of uh, places, in a lot of countries, mayors have huge power, huge resources uh, and huge decision making over uh, over climate mitigation policies that affect directly their city. So they are definitely emerging as a bigger voice at COP. Uh, Vladimir Putin, any sign of him? We know he's in the area. Yes, so Putin did uh, arrive to the UAE uh, on Wednesday and then went on to Saudi, but he did not uh, meet, come to the COP venue. There had been uh, suggestions that he might do. There was a lot of security there uh, yesterday, um, but no, he didn't. There was a quite, quite a greeting for him, though. There were jets flying overhead here at the UAE uh, for his arrival. Um, and it was a rare trip by uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, he met Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan, who was calling him his dear friend. So it was a really a, a statement by Putin uh, that he does have that support, or at least not condemnation, from countries like the UAE and Saudi Arabia over uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and we know that today is meant to be a rest day, but there'll still be plenty going on. Yes, there is. I'm actually speaking to you from an event here that's kind of on the in a, in a different zone. The actual COP venue itself is pretty much quietened down today. They usually have this rest day halfway through or so at the proceedings to allow people to take stock and to maybe kind of refocus minds as well. But there are a lot of events. The Atlantic Council is having a huge event here. Um, I'm at another event in a climate innovation zone that is free to access. It's got lots of activities here today with the idea that, you know, other people who are interested in climate, not just those who've got badges to the blue zone in the COP venue, uh, can participate. So there's a lot going on across the city, but back to work very much for the negotiators tomorrow. Suzanne, thank you very much indeed. That's Suzanne Lynch at COP28 in Dubai. You're listening to Monocle Radio. It is 8.38 in Zurich. That's 7.38 here in London. And let's head to the south of France now, where the international luxury travel market wraps today in Cannes. The three-day expo showcases the very best hotels, transportation and experiences to be had across the world and sees some 2,000 exhibitors attend. After more than 80,000 meetings, it all comes to a close amidst a backdrop of enormous growth in the industry, which is set to rise by more than 6% in the next decade. Monocle's Tom Webb attended the event and sat down with the portfolio director of the ILTM, that's Alison Gilmore, for her take on the success of luxury travel. It's been phenomenal. This is our 22nd edition of ILTM and it's just gone from strength to strength. We are an appointment-based show, so everybody that comes to ILTM um, has an appointment. And this week, in three days, we have 82,000 appointments. I'm gonna say that again, that's 82,000 appointments. That is a lot of meetings. It's a lot of meetings, but there's no chaotic energy. It's very beautifully run here. It is. We're a a class act here at ILTM. Everybody's here for the same reason. It's not that frantic grabbing people off the booth, you know, walking the aisles. Everyone is here. They know who they're meeting pre 
before they get here. So that's why there's a calmness. There's a lovely hum everywhere. I think if you go into the middle level, it sounds like birds. There's this little chatter of, of birds and everyone is just doing business and it is a lovely environment in which to do business. So who are the big newcomers here this year? We've got, so I think 20% of our business here this year is new. All the main brands that you know through Luxury Travel, everyone wants more space. Everybody wants to bring new brands. Everybody is developing. The development in Luxury Travel is phenomenal. It's going from strength to strength. And I think post-COVID, it is the one part of travel that is just so robust and just keeps going. I think I've been in and around Luxury Travel for about 25 years, and it's the one part of travel that's always very hardy. Rich people stay rich and they keep spending and they keep traveling so while they keep doing that we'll keep doing this and it's not just about very wealthy people you've got millennials and gen z looking to spend what they have in the luxury travel sector we absolutely have and at our opening forum on monday we had a speaker who talked about the next generation of gen z and it was really really interesting of, of you know what they want to do and how they want to do it and i think there's you know people have still got a lot to learn you know with this we've still got a lot of classic things here and the classic way of doing travel business with travel agents but there's a lot of young people who are booking for their friends they know what they want they may have three or four friends that are wealthy and want to do different things so the actual booking of everything is changing as the next generation comes up and you mentioned change and you mentioned the pandemic how have attitudes changed towards travel beyond spending more I think after the pandemic, I think everyone was just so frustrated of never going anywhere. You know, everyone was like, oh, travel's not returning. Oh, trade shows are going to end. They're not. <laughs> people want to travel more than ever. And there was a lot of, oh, you know, well, people only want to go somewhere private. They're not going to want to mix with other people. Everyone's going to travel private jet. No, they're not. People have gone back to traveling with a vengeance after COVID. These attitudes that you mentioned, people are traveling more but they're, they're also traveling slower would you say uh, the rise in boat travel overnight sleeper trains those things have always been here you know there's always been the orient express or the you know the blue train in south africa maybe it's got more well known to do things like taking the, the orient express or you know taking yachts every single hotel chain that's here has now got a yacht collection so and it's not a cheap yacht collection but it's also you stay at the hotel and then you take the yacht for a couple of nights so is it slow yeah maybe but it's always been here and these hotels that we're seeing are we seeing a development in hotels in colder regions in the northern hemisphere after what was such an extremely hot summer in southern europe um i think we may well be because we've got norway here for the first time iceland have always been with us but they're back in a bigger way we've got more icelandic property than ever and I think, yeah, I think people are looking for that. You know, we've had a nice hot summer, let's go somewhere a little bit colder. And not everyone skis. So, you know, you do want to go somewhere that isn't a ski destination. You know, Norway, Denmark, anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere, Greenland. Greenland is not a luxury destination, but it's a fabulous destination. And I think, you know, when people think of luxury, they think, oh, it's got to be a five-star hotel. No, it doesn't. You know, if it's what you want and you're willing to pay for it, it doesn't have to be, you know, all singing, all dancing, frette sheets and 
that kind of thing. And uh, you are going somewhere else uh, next year, of course, because you have a market in Singapore. Can you please tell us about that just finally? I can. It's not the only show I have. I have one in Latin America. I have one in North America, which is in the Bahamas. And then we have RTM Asia in Singapore. Um, that's been there for probably about five years. 2018, I think we launched that one. That's a phenomenal show. It's very much like this. It's the can of Asia. We have product from around the world and all the buyers are Asian, but there's some fabulous Asian properties out there as well and, so, and product. Um, so um, all my shows are like children. You know, you can't have a favourite, but I love them all, but I do like Asia. <laughs> That was Alison Gilmore in conversation with Monocle's Tom Webb. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's time to talk business now with Victoria Scholar, who's Head of Investment at Interactive Investor. Now, it's not just the luxury travel market that's growing. Europe's largest package holiday operator, that's TUI, predicts revenues will grow by 10% year on year and underlying profits will rise by a quarter. But now the company also says it's considering delisting from the London Stock Exchange. Victoria, why is that? Well, it's interesting because it's been a trend that we've seen from a number of different companies. There was reports uh, just last month to suggest that London Stock Exchange could lose as many as uh, 30 different companies worth over £100 million each from the public markets. Uh, For TUI, it has a dual listing. So it's listed in London as well as Frankfurt. And um, it's looking at trying to centralise all its liquidity, so have all of its shares traded on one exchange rather than two, which it believes could potentially be uh, more beneficial for the business. But, of course, this would be a blow for the uh, London market, which has been grappling with this exodus of companies, partly because London-listed stocks have been underperforming those in the US or Europe recently. And is this Brexit-related? It could be. We've seen that international investors have uh, been a bit concerned about investing in the UK uh, since Brexit, which is partly why we've seen this uh, discount for the UK stocks versus their counterparts, say, in Germany or in France. But the underperformance of the UK versus the US has been going on a lot longer than that. Uh, And that's partly because the US is a very attractive place to list. It's got huge liquidity. Investing is very much ingrained in their culture. And then, of course, we've had this huge surge in uh, tech stocks that's helped to fuel incredible valuations stateside. So, Brexit has something to do with it, but it's not entirely due to that. Yeah. I mean, the LSE has had a number of of setbacks, but also it's faced a series of technical issues in recent months. Yes, that's right. We've seen an outage uh, this week that's disrupted uh, trading. And I believe that's the third outage that we've seen in uh, a number of months. So again, adding to that sense of uh, possible unease towards the LSE at the moment. Yeah. Uh, Let's uh, talk about uh, tech then, Uh, cryptocurrency. So the CEO uh, of uh, JP Morgan Chase, that's uh, Jamie Dimon, says that uh, Bitcoin... uh, it should be banned, basically. 
<laughs> yeah, really interesting. This Jamie Dimon, obviously, what he says is always very closely watched because he's a prominent financier, and um, a lot of banks have been uh, setting up crypto trading desks, and uh, there's been talk about a uh, Bitcoin exchange traded fund, so um, a step towards kind of further legitimacy for the cryptocurrency, um, away from um, some of the uh, criticisms that it's used for, you know, crime or drug trafficking or money laundering and tax avoidance, at least these are some of the things that uh, Jamie Dimon was discussing during a, a speaking at a Senate banking committee hearing. So it's been interesting to hear his uh, criticisms of uh, crypto, Bitcoin and others uh, at a time when uh, the cryptocurrency has been doing extremely well. Uh, Bitcoin is up around 25% just in the past month alone, and it's up about 160% so far this year. So it's been an incredible performing asset. Uh, but of course, not without risks. Yeah. Now, he was actually questioned along with some other heads of banks by Senator Elizabeth Warren, who is, of course, the, the Democrat from, from Massachusetts. And she uh, was asking them a lot of questions. Uh, and what was interesting about that was that they were all completely in, in unity with their, with their answers. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, Elizabeth Warren has been saying that um, I'm not usually holding hands with the CEO of multi-billion dollar banks. Um, so she's she's not one to uh, shy away from, um, you know, holding these uh, senior leaders to account. Yeah, yeah. Right, let's move on now to the Bank of England. And this is bad news for all of us here in Britain. <laughs> well, um, not all bad news, but um, the Bank of England has said that um, businesses and households have managed to uh, withstand the pain of higher interest rates so far, but it warned about the risks to the outlook for global growth and inflation and the increased geopolitical tensions as well, of course, with uh, the conflict in the Middle East. And this was all part of its uh, financial stability report. Uh, but one of the more worrying signs is that it said that Actually, there are about 5 million more households that are yet to feel the effect of the 14 straight rate rises we've seen from the Bank of England over recent years and months. And that's because uh, a lot of people are on fixed rate mortgages, which haven't expired yet or haven't come to the end of their term yet. Um, so once those mortgage terms end, then about 55% of mortgage borrowers are going to get hit by higher interest rates in the years ahead up to 2026. Uh, so that's partly why the Bank of England has paused from raising interest rates again in its latest two meetings, because we're still waiting to feel the effect of previous rate hikes uh, that began back in uh, December of 2021. Victoria, thank you very much indeed. That's Victoria Scholar. And this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Become a Monocle Magazine subscriber today and enjoy 10% off any annual subscription. It's time to get a truly global view that's upbeat and optimistic. Monocle has plenty more in store for 2023 that will keep you informed, entertained, and, of course, ahead of the game. With a global roster of correspondents and bureau, we deliver stories that you won't find elsewhere. Expect insights on everything from diplomacy and design to art and architecture and more. Sign up today and you'll receive 10 issues and seasonal specials full of inspiration. Visit monocle.com slash subscribe and enter the code radio 10 to redeem this offer. And 
And finally today, we're off to Portugal, where plans for the new Lisbon airport have finally been made public. This has been a long time in the making. Over the past 53 years, different governments have failed to reach an agreement on the location for the new hub, that is, until now. Well, Carlotta Ravello is Monocle's senior foreign correspondent. Uh, she is also Portuguese uh, and she has more on this story. Carlotta, thank you for getting up early and coming into the studio. A pleasure, Georgina. <laughs> she doesn't mean that. Um, what more do we know about this? So uh, this has been quite a saga, as you can imagine. Uh, it's been 53 years since the idea of creating a new uh, airport in Lisbon was first considered by a government and taken seriously. And since then, there's been a series of commissions, inquiries, public uh, 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 open uh, competitions, and it has never been able to produce an actual conclusive uh, result until it was this week when this independent technical commission that had been appointed by the now outgoing government um, uh, realised which of the several options that were put forward would be the best. Now, they chose the area of Alcochete. This is just south of the river from Lisbon. Um, and it actually would involve um, quite a few interesting things. It would involve creating a new bridge across the river Tagus, uh, or Tejo in Portuguese, and also uh, the introduction of a high-speed rail line. These are all projects that were already in the making. Uh, the, the conversation about creating a new bridge and introducing high-speed rail has been on going. Uh, so the commission realized that, you know, the location of the new airport actually wouldn't matter because these are already other projects and you could put them all together. Mm. Now, what's at stake here is the fact that Lisbon's airport is overcrowded. You know, it's the same airport that it has always existed in the capital since it was ever created. Um, and um, for those not familiar with the airport, it's very much like Hong Kong's old airport. You are landing right in the middle of the city. Uh, uh, you know, airplanes go above um, apartment blocks and above football stadiums, uh, above the entirety of the city, which, of course, poses some security concerns. But of course, when the airport was first built, the traffic wasn't that bad in terms of the amount of aircraft that land and take off every day from what is now one of Europe's busiest capitals. So there is a lot of reasons for why this conversation has been ongoing. Yeah. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about the new location. So it's it's some way out of uh, out of Lisbon. Yes, it is uh, some way out of Lisbon, but it would see the introduction of this high-speed rail link connecting to the city. And, you know, uh, in Portugal, we've been privileged that we have an airport smack bang in the middle of the city. But you can take the example of London, where most airports are a bit far out and taking a train to get to an airport is not actually unusual. So it's trying to move to that model where perhaps low-cost carriers could be in this new hub while other carriers stay in the middle of the city. That's a conversation for later down the line, but that has been discussed already. Uh, now, the price tag is quite hefty. It's about 9 billion euros, um, which uh, is uh, a lot of money. Uh, but all the options considered were around that price tag, between 8 billion and 9 billion. And if you consider that this one will have a direct connection to high-speed rail, will also bring remove some traffic from the middle of the city, because right now people from the southern uh, shore of the river, the only airport that they have is by going into Lisbon. So this would open an entire region of the High Alentejo and south of Lisbon, where they do not have to cross into the city. So actually, might be beneficial 
beneficial uh, in that regard and also um, to uh, help improve uh, links um, with that part of the country. Now, the, the Another thing to look at this is, of course, it will take a number of years for construction to be finalised. They're saying that at least until 2035 um, minimum, um, with 2038 being the more um, uh, realistic uh, option here. Um, and, uh, of course, it is a long uh process that has taken five decades to get to this point. Uh, so everyone is quite happy that there's been at least a decision. Um, but what I think it's quite interesting here is that it comes at a time where Portugal is trying to expand, but finally doing it in a, or expanding its infrastructure, but finally doing it in a way that has a long-term vision. Mm. You know, the fact that it involves, and I keep stressing that point because it is quite important, you know, the fact that Portugal does not have a high-speed rail at this point uh, it's quite shocking. So Absolutely. the fact that it involves that, that takes that into consideration, those are all things that when the project is concluded will be highly beneficial for the country. Plus, the ambition here is that it would create, according to them, when it's completed, it would be the biggest aviation hub in Europe. That is the ambition. Wow. But I mean, this is all happening while the government's in crisis. So uh, what's uh, the likelihood of it going ahead? Absolutely. So uh, I, I reckon you might be questioning, why did it take 50 years for us to get here? <laughs> um, because um, any time there was some sort of progress, there would be a political crisis. Or, uh, as you know, Portugal had a bailout by the IMF. And um, so there would be some sort of political or financial crisis and the plans had to be put on hold. Uh, so while it's great news that the Independent Technical Commission has reached a conclusion, we do have a government in crisis that is outgoing and it will be the new incoming government that will have the final say whether or not this goes ahead. So there's still a chance that that those 53 years might be increased to 54. <laughs> and, and, and when is the election and is there a likelihood of a, of a complete change? So the election is now scheduled for uh, the beginning of March in 2024. Uh, early polling is su- suggesting that the far right will have some significant gains, not enough to form a government uh, and to become the prime minister, for the leader to become the prime minister, but significant enough to have bigger representation in parliament. And if... Um, the socialists, the current government, uh, the centre-left fails to get a majority, there will be, there's an open room for maybe a coalition on the right that will involve the far right. So that is the danger here. Uh, since the government has, uh, the parliament has been dissolved and since this crisis has been ongoing, of course, even though uh, the election campaign hasn't officially started, the, as you can imagine, across newspapers and television and all of that, the rec- rhetoric has been amped up and all those conversations are ongoing. At the moment, the Socialist Party, the current uh, outgoing government, is having its internal party conference to decide on its new leader. Uh, coincidentally, the new the person who's um, uh, tipped to become the new leader is the one that was responsible for choosing the location of the new airport. Uh, so it all ties in together. So we might have a new airport, a new prime minister. 2024 has a lot in store for Portugal. Carlotta Ravello, thank you very much indeed. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, Carlotta Ravello and Laura Kramer. Our researchers, uh, Naomi Ekwe and our studio manager, Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way and the briefing is live at midday in London and The Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. 